This is Franz. Welcome to the Insurance Exam Podcast. What led me to produce this podcast is I'm a big fan of learning by audio. And I have another podcast out there which has been successful and has gotten a lot of high reviews. And that's the Series 7 podcast. Now, when you pass the Series 7 exam, if you're going to work in the financial services industry, quite often you're going to have to pass the insurance exam following the passing of the Series 7 exam. Now, the insurance exam is administered state by state. However, this audio course is designed to help you prepare for pretty much any exam given by your state, with the exception of things that are specific to your state. When I took the insurance exam, I had to take a class in addition to studying the books. And in the class, they they pointed out any differences in our state regulation of insurance versus uh, other states. And you'll have to know that. But for the most part, the items covered in the state-by-state insurance exam is going to be the material covered in this audio course. Now, what I'm doing here for you is I'm providing you five sample lessons of the material contained in the full course. Now, the full course is 30 lessons in entirety. Uh, There's 26 actual lessons and then four review lessons where you're going to be reviewing the information you would have learned in the previous 26 lessons. So it will help you prepare while you're driving, exercising, doing whatever else you need to do, but you probably still will need to study the books. I always tell people that that learning by audio is just one method to reinforce what you should be learning by reading your books or going to classes. The full audio course is available at the website insuranceexampodcast.com. So if you like these lessons and you think it would be valuable for you, then go to the website and click the download link and it will take you to a service called Gumroad where you'll put your credit card information in and and then you're able to download the full audio course. Now, once you download the individual MP3 files, I encourage you to put it into your mobile device by just using your computer and docking your mobile device and moving it onto your mobile device. I have videos out there that explain how to do this. Perhaps I will put a link to that video on this website as well. But it's all already available at the series7podcast.com website where you can watch the video over there if you want to. All right, let's get on to this lesson for today. The title of this lesson is Lesson Number 2, Introduction to Insurance, Part 1. Welcome to this lesson entitled Introduction to Insurance, Part 1. In this lesson, we're going to talk about many different aspects of what insurance actually is, what it does, what it can do, and what it can't do, and some of the basic underlying principles, the different kinds of insurance, what kind of companies sell insurance, what kind of people sell insurance, Uh, just kind of a basic overview that lays the foundation for things that are going to come later in the course. First, let's ask the most basic question of all. What is insurance? Insurance is an agreement that helps people protect against damage or loss of something due to an event that cannot be predicted. Now, that's very important. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. 
but there has to be some degree of uncertainty in order for insurance to cover whatever it is. There are many types of insurance, including the following. Homeowner's insurance, which protects a house or other property against unexpected damage. Life insurance. This protects a person's income earning potential in case of disability or death. Also something that was not expected. Protects those who are left behind, who are now out of income that was made by someone who was working. Another kind of insurance is automobile insurance. And this just protects a person's vehicle. You can get insurance for your actual car, the cost of repairing or replacing a car when it gets in an accident. And you can also get auto liability insurance, which is going to protect you against things that you do if you accidentally cause damage to another vehicle or vehicles or people. Liability insurance is going to help protect you from that so that that's not a financially catastrophic event. Insurance is a social service. It works by spreading risk over a large number of people. It counts on the fact that some people will have to use it and some people will not. Everybody pays for it, but only some people will have to use it. If everybody had to use it, the insurer would go bankrupt because there'd be not enough money in order to cover the losses of everyone. So they're counting on probability that even though they're insuring thousands of cars, that only a small percentage of those cars will ever be involved in an accident. And in this way, it helps minimize the risk by drawing on a large pool of people. The larger the pool of people, the more money they've got flowing into their company and the less likelihood that they'll run out of money by paying too many claims. So giving risk to someone else is also called transfer of risk. It helps individuals, or in some cases businesses, so they do not experience an event that will have catastrophic financial consequences. For example, let's say you get in a car wreck and you total your expensive car. Usually, if you would have to replace that car yourself, you would be out thousands and thousands of dollars, most likely. And unless you are already quite wealthy, this would be a catastrophic financial event from which you might or may not recover. You might have to declare bankruptcy. On the other hand, if you have an auto insurance policy, after you pay some money in deductible, most likely, your insurance company will pay for the repair or replacement of your car, in which case it's still a taxing financial event. So there's still some financial impact on, on yourself, but not nearly to the degree which could happen if you were uninsured. Let's talk about a few different vocabulary words, some terms that you're going to need to know in the discussion going forward. The first is policy owner. We'll also talk about the insured. This is the person who buys a policy from an insurance company in order to benefit. So this is usually the, the typical person who wants to get auto insurance, life insurance. They're purchasing the policy. They're called the insured. The premium is an amount of money that the policy owner pays or the insured pays, usually on a monthly basis, so that they may have an insurance policy. Now, this varies 
from the kind of insurance that you're getting. It varies from insurance company to insurance company. And most of the time, it varies from in the insured, from one insured person to another insured person. For example, when you're doing auto insurance, one person's car is much more expensive than another person's car. And so the premium to insure that car is likely going to be much larger. Also, if you've shown that you're a higher risk, so let's say you get in a lot of car accidents, your premiums are most likely going to go up because you're seen as more of a risk that you're going to cost the company money. The next thing you're going to want to know is the term insurer. Now, the term insurer is just another term for the insurance company. They're the people who provide the policies to the insured, or the policy owners, as they're also called. The next term you're going to want to know is benefit. The benefit is the amount of money the insurer agrees to pay the policy owner when certain events occur. Now, these events vary based on the type of insurance, but could be things like car accidents, house fires, flooding, or even a death or disability. A benefit can be paid out when a loss is experienced, which is defined as having an asset that experiences a reduction in value. Let me just give you a couple examples. So if you have a car and let's say it's worth $10,000, you get in a car accident and it's going to take thousands of dollars of repairs in order to get that car back into working condition. That means you've experienced a loss. The car is not worth as much as it was before. Same thing with a house. Let's say it's worth $200,000, then gets, and then there's a house fire, and the house has, has large sections of it that are damaged. In that case, you've also experienced a reduction in value of your house, and so you are entitled, if you have insurance, to a benefit. Next, we have the word policy, and this is just a legal contract that spells out the terms of the agreement between the insurer and the insured such as the amount of the premiums and the amount of the benefits when certain things are triggered. And that's just going to depend on the individual policy, what's being insured, the price of what's being insured. It's going to depend on a lot of different things. And finally, we have the word claim. And a claim is just a request for payment to the insured after a loss happens. So you get in a car accident, you call up your insurance company and you say, I've gotten a car accident, here are the details, I want to file a claim. When you do that, they'll investigate it and see if you have a valid claim, and if you do, then they will pay out a benefit based on what you have in your insurance policy. So let's move on and talk a little bit about risk. What is risk and how does it define what happens in the insurance game? Now, risk is a daily occurrence, and it's a universal hazard. Everybody has to deal with some element of risk or another. And there's all sorts of things that constitute risk. Injury, personal loss, premature death, loss of employment, damage to property, illness, and disability are all risks that people encounter, and are all things that people like to purchase insurance against. Managing risk is the primary reason people purchase insurance. Life is uncertain. They want to make sure that they're going to be okay despite what could happen. Not what will certainly happen, but what might happen. So when you're talking about risk in the insurance business, there are two things that you need to consider. One is that it says that there is a possibility of a loss. And number two, 
it's uncertain whether or not the loss will happen. So in, when you're defining risk in insurance terms, both of those things, the possibility of the loss and an uncertainty about whether it will happen. Anything that might result in a financial loss poses a risk, but in the terms of insurance, there must also be an element of uncertainty. We'll talk a little bit more of that in a second, but there's not everything that can cause you to lose money is insurable because not everything has an, that element of uncertainty. Risk means loss is only one possibility. It must also be possible that no loss will occur. You might get sick, you might get in a car accident, you might have a house fire, but then again, in all likelihood, none of these things will happen, or maybe only one of the three. So there, there has to be some uncertainty if it's going to be insurable. And there are two kinds of risk that we talk about in insurance. The first type is called pure risk. With this kind of risk, there is only the possibility of loss without any possibility of gain. For example, the chance of you getting in a car accident. If you get in a car accident, your car is not going to gain in value when you drive it next, but it's going to decline in value. Whenever you drive a car, it's never going to get more valuable. You only can go down. Pure risk is the only kind of insurable risk. The second type of risk is called speculative risk. And this kind of risk means that it's uncertain whether there's going to be a loss or a gain financially. For example, when you're placing a bet in a casino or investing in the stock market, these are kinds of speculative risk. So when you say you go up to a slot machine, you put in a quarter and you pull the lever. It's a speculative risk because you might gain money. If you hit the jackpot, you could gain a lot of money. It's not very likely, but the possibility is still there. You most likely will lose money, but it's not a pure risk because you could either gain or lose. Same with the stock market. When you buy stock, the stock might lose value, in which case that you would lose money, or the stock might gain in value, in which case you would make a profit. You can't insure yourself against speculative risk. It just wouldn't be good business. When we talk about risk, we also need to talk about perils and hazards and what the difference between the two are. Perils and hazards are both things that can cause risk. A peril is an immediate, specific event that causes loss and risk. For example, when a tornado is ripping through a town, the peril is the tornado, as it destroys property and puts lives at risk. That's a peril. If there's a fire going on, the fire is the peril, for example. A hazard is a factor that can cause peril. When talking about insurance, there are three different kinds of hazards that you're going to encounter. There are physical hazards that arise from material, structural, or operational factors of a risky situation. For example, out in front of a building, there's an ice-covered sidewalk that could cause people to slip. It's a physical condition that is causing more risk. It's a hazard because it might cause people to fall and injure themselves, in which case they would have to pay medical bills and might need to use their insurance. There are moral hazards, 
and these are caused by people's habits and values, or the lack thereof. A person who lies and so puts another person in harm's way is an example of a moral hazard. For example, if there were somebody who's expecting a vehicle and they said, oh, I did the inspection and everything looks great, but they really kind of turned a blind eye to a potential problem, this is a moral hazard because because of their dishonesty, they put somebody at risk. When they drive that vehicle, there's a chance that whatever was wrong might cause an accident, resulting in property damage, injury, or even loss of life. And the third kind of hazard is a morale hazard. Not a moral hazard, but a morale hazard. And these are caused by human negligence or irresponsibility. For example, a construction worker who fails to take proper safety precautions on the job site. He's, let's say he doesn't wear his hard hat when he's going to work. Something falls, hits him in the head. That was because he was being negligent and irresponsible. The injury to him is far greater. He's putting himself at risk by not wearing the proper safety equipment. Now that we've talked a little bit about what risk is and what it's not, and what kind of risk is insurable, let's talk about ways that insurance companies, individuals, and businesses manage risk. Now, there are many ways to manage risk, and the method that's best to use depends on the situation. I'm going to briefly talk about the five major risk management strategies that can be remembered by using the acronym STAR. That's S-T-A-R-R. So two, so two R's in STAR. The first is sharing, S. When risk cannot be avoided, it can be helpful to share the risk with as many others as possible. In this way, if a loss is experienced, the effects of the loss are shared over multiple people instead of impacting a single person catastrophically. That means that each individual person's loss is much smaller overall, which is often the most desirable outcome when risk truly cannot be avoided. So this is what's often done in insurance companies. You have a large pool of people who are all paying money to the insurance company, and when one person experiences a loss, they just take money from that pool, and no one person has to bear the entire loss themselves. A second way to manage risk is transfer, T. This means giving the risk and the associated loss to another willing party such as an insurance company. The other party is usually more willing and able to bear the risk than the original party. An insurance company likely has much more at their disposal than any given individual. So by transferring your risk and the associated loss to the insurance company, they are much more able to deal with that. The next one is avoidance, A. This entails avoiding the risky behaviors in the first place so that loss does not occur. For example, a person who avoids driving is not at risk in getting in a car accident. They give up the advantages of having an automobile, but their risk is minimized in this way. So you can think of different ways that you can avoid having risk in the first place if you don't want to deal with the possibility of loss. The next is R, reduction. 
when the risks can't be avoided, they can often be reduced instead. There are two different ways this can happen. The first is reducing the possibility that the loss will occur. The second is reducing the amount of potential loss when it does occur. For example, installing a smoke alarm in a building doesn't make it any less likely that there will be a fire, but it does help reduce the possibility of loss if there is a fire. The sooner somebody is alerted to a fire, the sooner they can either try to put the fire out or call the fire department, and they also have a greater chance to escape without personal injury. So that's a way to say, okay, risk is going to happen, loss is possible, let's do everything we can, take safety precautions in order to either completely avoid incidents of loss or to reduce their impact when they do happen. And the second R is retention. That means doing nothing about the risk. That means you're retaining it. The person simply recognizes that there's a risk and agrees to do things like pay a small deductible if there is a loss. A deductible is just a portion of money that you have to pay before your insurance kicks in. So you just realize, yes, there's going to be risk, there's going to be loss. I accept that and I'm willing to take the consequences. So once again, that's S-T-A-R-R, -R, sharing, transfer, avoidance, reduction, and retention. Now I want to get into something that's called the law of large numbers, which is something we've touched on a little bit, but I want to go into in a little bit greater detail. This means that an insurance provider assumes the risk for a greater number of people. So as large as possible, honestly. In order to make paying out insurance claims financially feasible, they need to have some idea about how many losses are likely to occur statistically among a certain number of people. They need to be able to predict what they're up against. It's impossible to predict how often loss will occur for an individual. That's just, there's no way to do it. But according to the law of large numbers, insurance providers can estimate with some degree of accuracy, at least kind of a ballpark figure, about how many losses will occur in a large group of people over a given period of time. Say they insure 10,000 drivers. And they know, since that's a large group, in a year's time, approximately 200 will make automobile claims or something like that. I'm just speculating, but that's saying they're able to then know about how much money they need to set aside for automobile claims because they've got this large pool and they know the statistics about how many people are likely to use it. And that's going to vary in reality, but it will likely be within their estimate. One way that they use these statistics is to decide how much that they need to charge as premiums in order to provide reliable coverage to their clients. So they decide, oh, there'll probably be about this many auto claims, so it's going to cost us about this much money, and we're going to spread the cost out between all of our many clients, and so this is how much we're going to need to charge each individual client in order to make sure we have enough money. Now, the larger the group of individuals, the more accurately a company can predict the number of losses. For example, if you have a company with 5,000 employees 
and another company of 40,000 employees, the insurance company will be able to make predictions about the losses experienced in the company with 40,000 employees much more accurately. So it's in their best interest to try to find large groups. When talking about large groups, it's also helpful to talk about exposure units. And an exposure unit is an item or a person being insured that is exposed to risk. In life insurance, it is the financial value of a person's life, their employment, their assets, etc. And in car insurance, it's the vehicle. Each individual vehicle is an exposure unit. With the law of large numbers to work, the largest possible number of exposure units should be combined into a single group. And so all of these things are similar. They're all cars, they're all people, they're all the same type of insurable thing, whatever that is. Moving on, let's talk a little bit about insurable interest. Insurable interest says that before something can be insured, the person taking out the policy has to have a legitimate interest in preserving the value of the thing that is being insured. Now that might seem like common sense. Let's take a look at a few examples. This kind of illustrate a little bit more what this means. First, let's consider life insurance. A person is assumed, for purposes of insurable interest, to have an interest in his or her own life. A person is also assumed to have an interest in the lives of immediate family members and other loved ones. These are based on the fact that families typically love each other and are assumed to want to remain together for the purposes of insurance. Interest can also be established between individuals in a business arrangement because the continuance of each business partner's life brings financial gain to the other parties. So then it's assumed if you have a, some sort of business relationship with someone, say you are partners in a company, then you're also assumed to have an insurable interest in the other person's life. If one business partner were to die, the other partner would want to preserve the financial stability of the company. And so in that case, you also have an insurable interest even though you are not directly related to that person. When talking about life insurance, um, insurable interest only has to exist at the time when the policy is created, but doesn't necessarily need to exist when a claim against the policy is made when a death occurs. For example, a wife takes out a life insurance policy on her husband earlier in life and their marriage is fine. The husband dies and the husband and wife were estranged at that point. The policy is still in effect. You don't have to prove that there's still an insurable interest at the time the policy is cashed out. The time after a death, even if people were estranged, is a can be an emotional and difficult time, so that's there's not going to lay the burden of proving insurable interest on a person at that time. Now while talking about property or casualty insurance, that's a little bit different. An insurable interest has to exist both at the time the policy is taken out and at the time that the claim is made. It's much easier to determine an insurable interest when talking about property as opposed to human relationships. For example, I can take out an insurance policy on my house and my car, 
But if I take out an insurance policy and then sell my car, I don't have an insurable interest in the car any longer. That's also the reason that I can take out an insurance policy on my own house, but I can't take out an insurance policy on my neighbor's house because I don't have an insurable interest in his house. So if something were to happen to his house, it would not affect me financially. Insurable interest also determines who may purchase a policy, but it doesn't determine who may benefit from a policy. For example, in a life insurance policy taken out by a wife for her husband, and then the husband dies, a portion of the money can legally be donated to charity, even though that charity does not have an insurable interest in the man. And finally, in this chapter, we're going to talk a little bit about insurable risks. Not every kind of risk is equally insurable. Risks that can be insured all have the same characteristics that make them predictably insurable. The more closely a risk lines up with these characteristics, the more easily it can be predicted and insured. The first is that there must be a large number of homogeneous units, whether these are cars, people, etc., so that there can be a large enough pool of people to share the risk. Homogeneous is just a word that means of the same kind. A large pool of cars, a large pool of houses, or of employees, whatever that may be. So if there's not enough homogeneous units, then it's not going to be insurable because you won't be able to predict how often a loss might occur. There won't be enough people to share the risk. The second one is that the insurance company must be able to measure a loss, which means putting a specific monetary value to the loss. Otherwise, they will not be able to calculate how much premiums and payouts should be. So, for example, if you've got a car, it's easy to then appraise the car and say how much it's worth. And then when damage occurs, they're able to assess how much needs to be paid out on that car. You can't get insurance for, say, emotional trauma because you can't easily put a price on that. It's subjective. And so that's not something that you can get insurance for because you can't put a specific monetary value on it. The third one is that loss must be uncertain, which means that the risks are pure risks. There's not going to be any gain possible. If the loss were not uncertain, the insurance company could not stay in business because they would have too much to pay out. They count on some policies just never being cashed out, so the loss has to be uncertain. Number four, there must be a high chance of economic hardship caused by the loss for something to be able to be insured. For example, you cannot insure a $5 toy car because breaking it would not cause economic hardship, while breaking a $5,000 car would, an actual car. This also means that you can't insure something belonging to someone else. Got the example about the neighbor's house, again, because if something happened to someone else's property, it doesn't affect you economically. It doesn't cause economic hardship. You can't insure it. It has to be something valuable, something that can lose value, and something that you have a specific economic interest in. And finally, insurance companies 
couldn't remain solvent if they covered catastrophic perils, which are events that cause widespread loss to many people at once. There's no way to predict or plan for these events. So that's why insurance policies do not cover damage caused by war, floods, earthquake, nuclear fallout, though it is possible to purchase specific policies that do cover some of these areas. For example, you might get homeowner's insurance and then buy an additional policy that covers flood damage if you live in an area where floods are common. But this also involves paying a higher premium for additional coverage, especially because these events are so unpredictable. A lot of them have to do with weather or natural disasters, things that you just can't see coming the insurance company can't plan for, and so they're going to have to make you pay a much higher price in order to get that coverage. Well, that is the end of the, this lesson today. Let's just go over a little bit about what we talked about. We talked about the definition of insurance and how it has to do with risk. We talked about what risk is, defining it, talking about the difference between pure risk and speculative risk. We talked about perils and hazards as being things that cause risk. We talked about managing risk, the S-T-A-R-R, sharing, transfer, avoidance, reduction, and retention. We talked about the law of large numbers, which helps insurance companies predict about how many losses will occur in a certain large group. We talked about insurable interests, which allow things to be insured that you have a legitimate interest in preserving. We talked about the different kinds of insurable risks, what things are and are not insurable, and how insurance companies determine that. We will continue talking about this introduction to insurance in the next lesson. Thank you for listening. If you think that these lessons would be valuable to you, please consider purchasing the full series of lessons at the website insuranceexampodcast.com. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, feel free to drop me a note. The email address is franz at insuranceexampodcast.com.